Welcome to the Capital Inc. Master Series Podcast. I'm Randy Givens, Head of Maritime Equity Research at Jefferies, and I'm here with Hamish Norton, President of Starball Carriers. So this is one of the opportunities of the companies that we cover, and I'm delighted to have uh, this chance to have an in-depth discussion with one of the industry leaders here at Starball. Please note the podcast can be accessed at www.capitalinkpodcast.com. Also, we have a disclaimer I'll read real quick. This interview is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to provide investment advice, so it may include some forward-looking statements. Now, as many of you know, Starbuck is a global shipping company that trades under the ticker SBLK. It is the largest publicly traded dry bulk company with 120 vessels on a fully delivered basis. So, we'll welcome Hamish here and start by discussing Starbuck's operating structure. So if you can give us an, uh, an overview of what Starbuck is today, how you got here to the 120 vessels, kind of what you're doing in terms of your vin- vertically integrated shipping company with your chartering, with your trading, and what this means to your competitiveness and cost efficiencies. Well, Randy, as you mentioned, we have 120 vessels. Um, we manage uh, most of those vessels in-house. Uh, we handle the chartering of all of those ve- vessels in-house. Mm-hmm. Uh, the vessels that we don't manage in-house are managed by affiliates of the companies from whom we bought certain fleets. Um, and those affiliates have to basically keep us satisfied that they're doing a good job managing the fleet. Uh, we're not paying any commissions for management to any affiliates of Starbulk. Um, and, um, you know, we have... Um, just about the lowest operating cost per vessel per day of anybody in the dry bulk business. And among the public companies, again, we have very low, if, if not in fact maybe the lowest um, overhead cost per vessel per day. And um, you know that can be uh, very important in the sorts of markets we find ourselves in right now. Where you know vessels are making some money, but the operating costs are a very important factor in profitability. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen the highs and lows of rates, so um, yeah, it makes it more important there. So with that, of the 120 vessels, you operate Newcastle Maxes, Cape Sizes, Supermax, Panamax, uh, a variety of different asset classes within the dry bulk sector. What are the kind of pros and cons to this fleet diversification? Well, you know, the, 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 the con is that we never have 100% the type of vessel that's making the most money at any given time. Fair. <laughs> um, and the pro is that we'll always have some of the type of vessels that are making the most money at any given time. Sure. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit of diversification. Um, there is, I have to say, a very large correlation in the results of different vessel classes over time, uh, you know, at any at any one time, that correlation may not be too apparent. But if you know, if you wait a few months, it it, it shows back up. Um, you know, our fleet is a little less than a third Capes and Newcastle Maxes by number, about a third Panamax and Campser Max, and a little more than a third Supermax and Ultramax at this point. Uh, by value, it's about half capes and Newcastle maxes. Sure, the largest ones being yeah. uh, the most uh, weighted. Now, with that topic of fleet expansion, you know, you, you haven't always had 120 vessels, right? So you've done many fleet acquisitions in the past two years. So what kind of drives this 
expansion strategy. Sure. Um, and also, it does provide some economies of scale operationally. It's still a very um, kind of diversified market, fragmented market. So do you see any advantages to the, to the scale? Sure, we, we do see advantages to the scale. First of all, um, operating costs, it helps a tiny bit with operating expense. Frankly, we're already probably at the size where uh, economies of scale for operating costs have largely been reached. Okay. Um, for overhead per vessel per day, every time we do a fleet acquisition, we drop our overhead per vessel per day. Sure. So that's, that is important. Um, but the biggest synergies are probably market cap of the company and liquidity. Yep. Um, the number one complaint that we hear from investors after, you know, when are rates going to go up, sure. is, um, you know, when are we going to have mid-cap dry bulk companies? Right, right. And, you know, everybody's got a different definition of a mid-cap, but it's somewhere between two and three billion hmm. market value of equity uh, is where I think most people think mid-cap starts. And there are no mid-cap dry bulk companies, sure. and you know certainly not mid-cap at the bottom of the cycle. And so we're hoping that at some point we can reach mid-cap. Um, now I think it's very important to note that when we've bought these last four or five fleets, we haven't been making a bullish bet on the market. Hmm. This is not saying, you know, dry bulk is going to outperform, so we're going to buy dry bulk ships. We've been buying these fleets with cash and stock in about the same ratio as the debt and equity of star bulk has been before those acquisitions. Mm -hmm. okay. So it's really been just to increase our fleet size, to increase our market cap, to increase our liquidity, without really changing the risk profile of Starbuck. Sure. Now, speaking of that, your, your recent acquisition of the 11 vessels from Delphin, mm -hmm. um, you were able to achieve that through issuing equity at $13.21 yeah. a share, basically around your half, right? Um, how do you get to that valuation when your current share price is below $8? Well, the, you know, the, the deal we agreed with Delphin was that it was going to be a net asset value to net asset value deal okay. with a certain amount of cash and the remainder in shares. Hmm. And it was that simple. We valued their ships at net asset value, they valued our ships at net asset value. Do you think there's other opportunities like this? I have no idea. Hopefully so, for your, for your case. Um, now, speaking of Kelso, that's who you bought the Delphin fleet from, now you have another kind of private equity fund in your shareholder base. Mm -hmm. So what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? And more, more importantly, you know, like we just discussed, additional shareholders being private equity versus being kind of public free float, is there a big difference there? I don't know that there's that much difference. I mean, you know, the Kelso people are very smart investors. Sure. And I would expect that they would have some good ideas for us. Okay. Uh, and we'll certainly be trying to get them to give us their good ideas as, as often as possible. Um, you know, um, but at the same time, um, you know, once their shares are registered, they'll be free to sell. Okay. 
That's fair. Well, yeah, let's kind of switch gears a little bit and focus on IMO 2020. Obviously, your scrubber strategy, one of the largest uh, out there. So by January 2020, your, your goal is to have the entire fleet retrofitted with scrubbers, right? Now, your total investment is around $175 million or so, a little less than $2 million per vessel. So you've secured 70% debt financing for this. Now, if you can take us through your kind of rationale for making this investment decision, basically you're, you're betting that there's going to be a, a wide enough spread between HSFO, VOSFO, to have a, a very low uh, payback period. Um, what are your kind of assumptions for that spread over the next, let's call it 12 to 18 months? And if you can give us some more detail into why you're putting scrubbers on every vessel instead of just the largest. Well, you know, uh, we have our own views about the spread of low sulfur fuel to high sulfur fuel. Yes. But, I mean, the fact is our views are sort of beside the point. Mm -hmm. There's a forward market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who are we to say that the forward market isn't the, the truth? Uh, you know, it's it's the, the place where people are making and losing money every day. Uh, and, you know, there are smart people who have, in, in aggregate, set that price. And, you know, the spread is in the vicinity of $200 a ton. Yep. And at $200 a ton, we're quite happy with the investment. And we're happy with the investment in every vessel class. Hmm. Um, and if we chose to do so, we could hedge at $200 a ton. Now, there are many reasons why we're not doing that, uh, not least uh, of which is the, uh, cash, you know, the cash flow consequences of having to put up margins sure, on a hedge sure. like that. But you know, the, the, the point is that the, there's this forward market, and it's telling us that it makes sense to put scrubbers on every vessel class. Yeah, and it certainly makes sense uh, financially if the spread stays at two hundred dollars or even one fifty uh, for a year or two. What about operationally? You know, there there is a difference there. Being able to burn your HSFO, which you've been burning for decades, um, versus having to find do new blends and the fuel compatibility issues there. But on the other side of the coin, fuel availability concerns. You know, some owners are saying, well, the HSFO might not be available, so we might install the scrubber and still have to buy the VLSFO. What are your thoughts on those two, kind of fuel compatibility and fuel availability? Well, look, I, I think we're, we're happy that we don't have to worry about um, which low sulfur blends are going to work well in our ships. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that there will be a lot of low sulfur fuel that will work fine, but it's, it's a big job to vet all the various supplies sure. for people who have to do that. Um, now, we have the big job, as you pointed out, of making sure that we get availability of high sulfur fuel at a reasonable price. And, um, you know, one of the ways we will get availability is to change our bunkering style mm. a little bit. Um, at the moment, and in the past, we load our bunker tanks with more or less just about enough fuel to carry out the voyage coming up on the assumption that we can rebunker very easily. Okay. Um, in 2020 and leading up to 2020, um, we may decide to fill our bunker tanks full sure. when we find um, a good supply of, of high sulfur fuel. 
Uh, so that will require probably more work and capital. Okay. And then with that, um, you know, you're talking about the different ports. Certain ports have already banned open loop scrubbers, right? So how has that played into kind of your thought process now that you have only open loop scrubbers? And then what are your thoughts for possibly converting some of those to hybrid or closed loop? What is the capex involved in that decision? Um, how do you now view open loop versus closed loop versus hybrid uh, with all of the recent bans? Well, uh, we burn very little fuel in port. Sure. And the truth is that our calculations when we decided to implement scrubbers on our fleet assumed that um, we would never use the scrubbers in any port. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, it's not that big an economic deal. Okay. And then what about kind of further regulations? Some are saying, well, the IMO might eventually ban the open loop scrubbers. Is that a possibility? If so, how easily can you convert them to a kind of closed loop? Well, the, 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 IMO, might in? the IMO might ban closed loop scrubbers. Sure. I mean, remember that all the sulfur in the fuel goes into the seawater in closed loop scrubbers. Hmm. After it's discharged at the port? No. Okay. It's discharged at sea in closed loop scrubbers. Uh, closed loop scrubbers do not prevent the sulfur from being discharged into the sea more or less as it's collected. Okay. That's not what they do. They're closed loop in, an, in another sense. Hmm. They're basically fresh water um, scrubbers as opposed to salt water scrubbers. Hmm. But that sulfur laden fresh water is sent into the sea. Then dumped out. Yes. Okay. That's fair. And then speaking of the scrubbers, you have this equity incentive program uh, involved, yeah. right, where you're, you're paying up to 120 to 300 million for the outperformance yeah. based on kind of the four million shares. It's an exceptionally complex plan. Um, Correct. The intention of that plan was to um, put the company in a position where the board was pretty confident that the scrubber investment was, you know, going to be paid back in short order, mm -hmm. and to give management for the first two years of scrubber operation about 25% of the upside. Sure. And, and putting this kind of max um, incentive, it's 4 million shares, right? So this yeah. is less than 4% or so of your outstanding share count spread over two years. So. At best, you know, this program provides $300 million in outperformance, and you're diluting your shares by 4%. Is that correct? So it's, yeah. it doesn't seem like a large impact to current shareholders. I think yeah. if you outperform by $300 million, everyone will be okay with a 4% dilution. Thanks. That was our hope. Okay. Uh, I, 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 I would be pretty confident in that uh, assessment. Now, finally on the IMO, what are your thoughts on slow steaming? I know you've been a big proponent of this. We, we've seen your kind of cube route of speed and bunker prices and, and things of that nature. Now there's more of a push for kind of mandatory speed limits, let's call them. So what are your thoughts on that or maybe just doing slow steaming naturally without having to be forced to do it? Well, for, first of all, we suspect that the uh, 2020 sulfur regulations will lead the bulk of the fleet to slow steam anyway. Especially on the ballast leg. Frankly, both legs, okay. just because of the price of the fuel okay. uh, going up. But, um, you know, we're certainly in favor of mandatory slow steaming. Um, 
you know, so far the sense we're getting of what the IMO is thinking is, is not to mandate slow steaming, but to mandate fuel savings mm. with slow steaming as one of the ways that one can meet that requirement. Sure. Can you quantify the fuel savings for slow steaming? Let's say right now, you know, the average speed for a cape size, let's just call it 12 knots. If you go down to 11 knots, just a one knot difference in your speed, the average speed, what is the fuel savings there in kind of tons per day for a cape size, let's call it? Well, you know, the, the, the fuel savings on a, a voyage basis, the, the, the fuel goes down in proportion to the cube of the speed, the fuel consumption, but that's the instantaneous fuel consumption. Sure. Of course, if you go slower, your voyage takes longer. Okay. To compensate for the fact that you've taken longer, you actually calculate the fuel dropping by the square. Got it. Of the speed difference. So, if you know twelve to eleven is you know call it a ten percent difference in speed, sure. it's something like a twenty percent difference in fuel consumption. Wow. Okay. Close enough. So pretty meaningful there. Sure. Yeah. Um, Switching gears, just to focus kind of on Starbucks specifically, you did this debt refinancing recently. You've agreed to refinance a little over a billion dollars, uh, creating about, um, or saving about $10 million annually uh, in your interest expense, about $250 per vessel per day. Uh, kind of, can you elaborate, elaborate a little bit more on this and kind of, did this refinancing come from traditional banks or, or leasing companies? How were you able to basically refinance the vast majority of your debt? It came from a... a very wide group of traditional European shipping banks, um, uh, Taiwanese, Japanese, and Chinese lending institutions, um, uh, Japanese and Chinese leasing companies, um, and you know I think this is one of the big advantages that our um, you know, large finance department has given us is sure. the ability to maintain relationships with a very large group of lending institutions, right? Um, which you have paid off with this refinancing. Okay. Um, now let's get to your share repurchases. You know, like we said, you issued uh, a few million shares for the Delphin fleet at basically thirteen dollars twenty one cents a share. If you want to value it that way. Um, at the same time, you repurchased about a million and a half shares for an aggregate of $11.4 million during uh, 2019 so far. You still have about $35 million or so in remaining authorization. In the past, you mentioned possible dividend payments um, kind of going forward, but that when it, that's when your shares weren't trading at a 40% discount to NAV, right? Yeah. So with that, are additional share repurchases the maybe number one, number two, uh, so, or use of cash going forward after scrubbers, maybe debt repayment. How do you look at share repurchases uh, for the remainder of the year? Well, you know, we don't want to do debt finance share repurchases. There. And we're lever um, up in this environment. Yeah, and you know, we're comfortable with our cash balance as is to get us to 2020. Okay. Um, but if we see the opportunity to uh, sell a vessel or two um, at a good price, uh, then, we then we would probably use a good chunk of that cash sure. to buy back shares, okay. uh, given where the shares are trading today. 
That's fair. Yeah, that's one way to kind of monetize that. Yeah. Have to, to share discount yeah. here. Um, all right, let's look at kind of the overall dry bulk market. Obviously, U.S.-China trade war headlines have been uh, very prevalent. How do you see the dry bulk market being impacted if there's no trade deal in 2019 versus there actually being a trade deal in the next month or two? Also, have you seen uh, a lot of impact from the U.S.-China fixtures for soybeans over the last 6, 12 months with all of this trade war rhetoric? Yeah. Well, the trade war is obviously not a positive uh, influence on the market. Sure. But, uh, you know, before the trade war, U.S.-China trade uh, made up about 3% of dry bulk ton miles. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's basically gone to zero. Um, but that doesn't mean that those ton miles have gone to zero. Sure. Because replaced by it, it's been replaced right by s South American okay. soybeans. I mean, it was mostly soybeans right. uh, to China, and it's been replaced to some extent by South American soybeans. But um, you know, the at the same time, um, you know, the the Chinese have had a problem with. Uh, a virus that that uh, attacks their pig population. Yeah, swine flu there, sure. Yeah, so um, their total demand for soybeans has dropped. Now we think that will probably fix itself in in a year or, or two, um, but you know it's 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 basically not that big a deal. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, the, the trade war is certainly weighing on sentiment, right? When you trade. think of kind of global yeah. trade, who facilitates global trade, shipping companies, right? Especially when you think of China with all of their iron ore coal demand, obviously soybeans and other things. So how do you think that would change sentiment at least, if not much impact on pure operations and fixtures coming out of the U.S. Wow. to China and others, but just a trade deal, how would that kind of be, um, um, would, how would that impact Starbucks? I think it would, I mean, you're a much bigger expert on sentiment than I am. I'm, sure. I'm basically just looking at dry bulk rates. That's fair. Um, you know, what's important for dry bulk rates is not the, frankly, pretty tiny trade between the U.S. and China right. in dry bulk, but the state of the Chinese economy. Yeah. And to the extent the trade war looks like it's going to negatively impact the Chinese economy, that's bad for dry bulk, sure. unless the Chinese seeing a risk to their economy stimulate their economy by basically yeah. subsidizing things that demand steel production. Yep. So that's more coal and iron ore. And frankly, that's what we've seen in the past. Sure, that's fair. So. You know, it boils down to I have no idea. Okay. Because if the Chinese economy goes bad, that's bad. But if the Chinese economy is too at bad. risk okay. and they they stimulate it with things that demand steel production, that's good. So sure. Yeah. Who knows? And we, we've been asked that question a lot. And you know, kind of to answer your question, there certainly sentiment is bad, especially with dry bulk investors, and they're saying, you know, we'll we'll wait and to see how this U.S.-China trade thing pans out because. As you said, the direct impact to dry bulk shipping from U.S. to China isn't much, right? 3% or so of the ton miles. 
but obviously the indirect impact to China and how that affects steel demand for iron ore and coal and all these other things, much larger, right? And that's harder to quantify. So um, kind of going with that, China's port restrictions on coking coal, obviously affecting some of the coal trade recently. How is that um, impacting the, the Cape size trade? And then also India, how is their coal demand trending? And is that kind of booming the market well, a little bit? India, India is, is certainly helping mm -hmm. the market. Um, you know, not so much Capes, but, um, you know, Panamax, Camsermax, sure. more. Um, uh, you know, Chinese demand, uh, actually, for coking coal, you know, it, it's not been that helpful, but their demands for thermal coal have been outpacing domestic thermal coal production. Mm. So, you know, actually we see that as, as maybe being a positive. Um, you know, I have to say that coal is a very political commodity. Sure. And, um, you know, it takes a lot of people to mine coal, and so there's more scope for uh, protectionist sentiment mm -hmm. to favor domestic coal production. But, you know, that being said, you know, we haven't seen that, that big a, an impact. Sure. And I know in, in China, the domestic coal production, one, there's some questions around the quality of the coal, and two, yeah. there's questions around the safety of it. You know, just last week we heard of them <clears throat> shutting in some coal mines because yeah. of bumps and other things that could affect the, the coal mining domestically. And, you know, just to put it in context, 90%, let's call it, of Chinese coal demand is sourced domestically, right? So the yeah. impacts in the demand are more meaningful when it comes to the seaborne. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I, the seaborne trade in coal to China is basically the small difference between two very large numbers. Sure, what and, they're producing. And, and what they're yeah, total Chinese coal demand uh, is not very far off the entire volume of dry bulk commodities shipped by sea. Hmm. Sure. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, leverage with this yes. small changes to seaborne demand. Yeah. Um, all right, one more thing on the, the overall market something I'm sure everyone's heard of, Vale, right? They had the stamp failure back in January. Um, it's caused a mess. You know, we've seen headlines all over the place, Procutamine restarting, stopping, restarting, stopping, all of these things. So with that, you know, they've guided to production being, you know, 60 to 90 million ton, tons in 2019, less than the original guidance. What is Starbuck kind of um, assuming for Vale production or exports in 2019 compared to 2018? And then maybe in 2020 compared to 2019, like, do you think that restarts it and ramps up in the few next few months? Or are you waiting for the end of the year? And following on that, how are you positioning your fleet for that? Okay, well, you know, Valet um, we think is going to ship almost as much iron ore in 2019 as they shipped in 2018, right, and, okay. and that's not too far off. That that's basically you know under their guidance. guidance. Sure. Yeah. sure because they were saying that they were going to ship a lot more iron ore. And they did 330 million tons in 18, they guided to 390 million tons right. in 2019, and they said actually that guidance now is a little high. Yeah. So then they revised it to 315 to 330, right. kind of in line with 2018. Yeah, exactly, and, and that appears to be, they appear to be on track to meet that. Hmm. That's one of the reasons cape size rates are actually okay. Sure, yeah, it went from 4,000 a day to 14, yeah. you know, yeah. a month. 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the Brazilian iron ore shipments, you know, appear to be sort of on track. You know, now, as far as how quickly they'll increase production, it's a very opaque yeah. process. All, all I can say is that the Brazilian government and Valet both have tremendous incentives to get this right. Sure. Especially with the iron ore prices now at $100 a ton, something like yes. that. Yes. And then every year, historically, there, there's 5 to 10% more fixtures and activity in the back half of the year than the first half of the year, right? So yeah. there's other things that play outside of just Vale, Anglo-American, some other things kind of coming out of Brazil yeah. in the back half of this year that could yeah. boost rates. Yeah, of course, you know, that being said, Vale did have all the incentives in the world to have safe operation sure. of all their mines and, you know, Nevertheless, there was a big problem. Right, absolutely. Um, so yes, kind of switching gears just to your kind of spot time charter strategy, as I alluded to a few minutes ago there. Cape size spot rates now near around 14000 a day. Four trade agreements are pointing to maybe 18000 a day by December, end of the year. One-year time charter rates are in that fifteen, sixteen thousand 16000 a day, as seen by some recent fixture by some of your peers. So with that, how are you um, preparing or planning to operate your fleet They'll have scrubbers already retrofitted by the end of this year. So are you kind of using those in the spot market and just keeping that um, kind of charter premium with the spread? Or are you wanting to lock away some of the vessels in time charters uh, to kind of hedge yourself in that regard? Okay, so we're not, for the most part, uh, putting anything on time charter over January 1, 2020. Okay. Um, most of our capes... Um, have had the bulk of the work done already mm. to put scrubbers on. Sure. And so we could charter those ships out. Um, and we are chartering some of them out. Just from now to the end of the year. Yes, basically. yeah, okay. for, for, for that period. The ships without scrubbers were for the most part not chartering out um, so that we can get scrubbers on them. Because it's, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's not very easy to get a charterer's permission to you know, take back time off, yeah, yeah. yeah, to to put scrubbers on. So, um, you know, I think our, our, our chartering um, is basically dominated this year by the job of getting the scrubbers on. Okay. Um, and what you'll see also is that our days off hire mm. are quite a bit greater this year. Absolutely. Than they will be hopefully next year. Sure. Uh, because we are putting scrubbers on the whole fleet, yep. which creates some days off hire. And we're also um, moving forward any dry docks that were scheduled for 2020 into 2019. Makes sense, sure. Um, and, you know, that's another impediment to chartering. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's fair. Now, kind of last two questions here, just looking at Starbucks uh, share price, right? How would you characterize uh, Starbucks share price performance in 2019 year to date, given the market conditions, given Vale, given US-China trade, all these other things? What affected your performance and what do you expect uh, it to be going forward? The, the share price is, is a tremendous mystery to us and that's really your job, I think, is the share price. Okay. Uh, all we can say is that the share price to us seems very cheap. Sure. And I think if you put your money where your mouth is there with your share yeah. repurchases and other things. 
Um, well, with that, you know, you, you say this kind of very cheap, just to conclude for the investors watching. What, uh, or why should the investors buy Starbucks shares today? You know, they're trading below $8. You see some demand improvement later this year. You see supply growth slowing with accelerated scrapping, with uh, slow steaming, with vessels coming out of the market for scrubber retrofits, all these other things. Why should investors uh, buy Starbucks shares today? And then why will Starbucks shares outperform, you know, the other public peers in the dry bulk sector in the next six to 18 months? Well, first of all, you know, our shares are trading below, well below, I think, anybody's estimate of what our net asset value is. That's fair. So that would say that our shares are cheap relative to the private shipping market's judgment of what the ships are worth without any reference to the cash flows we're going to generate in 2020 and beyond. Okay. Um, and if you look at the cash flows we're going to generate in 2020 and beyond, um, you know, if the forward market in um, low sulfur versus high sulfur fuel is more or less correct, mm -hmm then there's more or less going to be a $200 a ton differential in those fuel prices. And our fleet burns something over a million tons per year hmm. of fuel. Sure. So that would translate to a $200 million difference for our fleet as compared to somebody else's fleet without scrubbers. Okay. So, you know, $200 million of extra cash flow in a year, that's not bad. Right. That's about a quarter of your market cap right now. So, I yeah. guess just in the extra cash flow, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that about covers everything. Uh, I'd like to um, thank Hamish uh, for the time here, Capital Link for the opportunity, and all the investors who, who tuned in. Starbuck is certainly set for what should be an exciting uh, upcoming quarters and years, so we will be watching closely. Thanks again. Thank you. All right.